Well, good morning. Good morning. Turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. If you're visiting with us this morning, we're glad you're here, and we just want to extend welcome to you. If, uh, if you don't have a Bible, we have some on that back table. We would love to give one of those to you as a gift. Uh, we feel that there is nothing more precious in this world than the words contained in that very book. So please help yourself. Uh, that, is, that is our gift to you. Well, we are continuing in our series through Matthew, and we are working through the Sermon on the Mount. We're coming to the end of chapter 5 this morning. To the last of Jesus' six, you've heard, but I say to you, statements about the Old Testament law in the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus has shown us over the past passages we've been looking at the proper interpretation of the law when it comes to anger, lust, divorce, oaths, revenge. These have been difficult teachings, uh, to be sure, because they aim at our hearts. Right? Jesus' teaching on these topics pulls back the layers, right? It, it, it goes beyond mere behavior, which is where we so often stay, and looks at the heart. And that stings a little bit. And as we come to this final section of Matthew 5, Jesus presents one of his most well-known and one of his most difficult teachings in the entire Bible. Jesus is going to command us to do something this morning that goes completely against our natural instinct and desires. To love our enemies. To love our enemies. Now let's read our text this morning. Starting in verse 43 of Matthew chapter 5. You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now let's ask for God's help as we come to his word. Our Lord and our God, we thank you for the scriptures that you've given us. Lord, that uh, we are so blessed to live in a time where they are readily available in so many languages. And uh, Lord, that, um, that we can read our Bible anytime we want. Lord, that is truly a privilege. And it is one, Lord, that we confess we take for granted. So Lord, as we come to your word this morning, to the teaching of Jesus on this page, we pray, Lord, that you would help us to listen carefully to the words of our Savior. That you would help us to understand and know his authority. Lord, we pray that you would help us not only to hear the teaching of Jesus Christ, but Lord, to do it. But Father, we know this is hard for us, and so we need your help. Please send your Holy Spirit to help us. Lord, would you show us where we may be sinning, where we may not be loving our neighbors. Would you encourage us, Lord, to walk in the righteous way that Jesus puts forth for us today. Lord, I pray for your help that I would only teach what is consistent with the teaching of Jesus here, that my words would simply be a reflection and an explanation of his. Nothing different, nothing more. Be with us today, we pray, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as we look at this text, there's kind of four main points that we can see as we move through the paragraph. The first is, Jesus is going to confront our tendency to hate as sinners. And then Jesus is going to give us a call to love as sons of God. 
And Jesus will continue by making an argument for gospel love. And finally, he puts forth the standard of God's perfection for us. Let's start in verse 43, looking at the tendency to hate as a sinner. Jesus says, you've heard it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. And once again, Jesus begins with a you have heard it said statement. This is number six. You can look at the previous paragraphs and you'll see he says the same thing to introduce teaching that the common people had heard from the Pharisees, which were religious leaders of the day, regarding the Old Testament law. Now, some of you are here for Curtis's sermon last week, and it was an excellent sermon. And Jesus' words here are, are in some ways a natural next step from the previous text, which is about revenge and retaliation. Now, Jesus moves on from discussing the biblical response towards those who would harm us and take advantage of us, and this morning he discusses the even broader and bigger question of responding to our enemies in general. And apparently the people in Jesus' day had been taught by their religious leaders you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now, only part of this statement Jesus quotes here is from the Bible. Only part of this statement is actually found in the Old Testament. Um, Jesus is uh, quoting Leviticus 19.18. Right? This was uh, the words of God to the people of Israel at Mount Sinai. Right? Think Moses. Um, you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. That was God's command to the nation of Israel. And notice the end there. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. We see the first part of Jesus' quotation in verse 43. Love your neighbor. In fact, this is one of the two greatest commands that Jesus mentions. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. We have those on, on the walls here. So what about the next part that Jesus mentions? About hating your enemy. Right? Is that something that was taught in the Old Testament? Is that something that God's people were supposed to do? No. No, Jesus is dealing with cultural teaching and the simple reality of the sinful tendency that all people have to hate their enemies. You see, the rabbis of the day, they had tacked on additional teaching to the Old Testament law. It was a common attitude in Jesus' day to hate your enemies believe it or not. Um, one rabbi wrote this, if, if one acts according to the way of your people, in other words, if, if somebody is a good member of the community, you shall love him. If not, you shall not love him. Right? That was basically summarizing the teaching in Jesus' day. But on top of that, the Bible says regardless of time, regardless of culture, regardless of location, all of humanity has a natural, sinful tendency to hate their enemies and love their neighbors. For example, the Apostle Paul writes in Titus 3.3 that the natural state of man is foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Not a great self-esteem booster, right? But notice how he says that part of our natural state is to hate others and to be hated by others. This is the natural condition that every person is covered by, every person is described by in their natural state. And even as Christians, we still struggle with sin along these lines. We can still find it hard not to hate other people, if we are honest. But Jesus' statement here brings up some important questions that we need to answer to better understand what's being said. So first, who is the neighbor being referred to here? Right? What does Jesus mean when he says, 
neighbor, right? What was the understanding of the day? Well, in the context of Leviticus 19.18, which we heard a minute ago, your neighbor was your fellow Israelite, right? Your fellow member of your, your tribe, your religious community. And this idea of neighbor continues into Jesus' day. The Pharisees would teach that the Jews were to love their fellow countrymen, their fellow Jew, that was their neighbor. Second, who is the enemy here? Right? Who did the people understand as their enemy? <clears throat> well, in the context of the culture Jesus is addressing, the enemy would have been anybody outside of the community of Israel. Right? Now, we have to understand a little bit about this period of time. Uh, the Jewish people were a very, very small group, and they were under the rule of Rome. For hundreds of years previous to that, they had been conquered by other various empires. Uh, their religion had been um, really desecrated in many ways. Um, and so the Jews had developed this very defensive attitude towards all of those that were not within the Jewish community. It was in some sense a matter of survival, right? They wanted to keep uh, the commands of God pure. Now, of course, things got a little off in the weeds as we are seeing in our text this morning. But in the context of the culture Jesus is addressing, right, because of a lot of this history, the enemy would have been understood as anybody outside the community of Israel. That would have been tax collectors, who we'll look at and learn about more later this morning, Gentiles, or Jews that disregarded the religion of Israel. Apostates, they would have been thought as. Third, when Jesus refers to love, what does he mean? We often think that love is a, a fuzzy emotional feeling that we have towards another person. And certainly love does have an emotional component to it, but biblical love is more than that. Loving your neighbor is not talking about just an emotional feeling, but rather the kind of love that seeks the well-being and good of another person. It's an action. Now, in, in our day as 21st century Americans, uh, we don't really think in terms of Jew and Gentile, right? That's not really uh, identities that we, we assign ourselves, unless you are Jewish, of course, and then that's still a relevant one. But the dynamic Jesus describes here of loving your neighbor, loving those within your circle, and hating your enemy, that hasn't gone away. That hasn't become culturally irrelevant because it is a condition of the human heart. Right? Just as an example, we tend to view those who agree with us in our views as our neighbors who we should stand with and look out for. Right? This becomes heightened during uh, election season. Those who disagree with our views are our, our enemies. Right? They need to be brought down and we're going to cut them off. We can't have any civil discussions with them because we're so... Ugh, right? Who would you consider your friends? Who would you consider your enemies? Now think about that for a moment. Who would you consider your friends? Who would you consider your enemies? Now, often we think, well, I don't, I don't know if I have any enemies. I don't know if I have people who, who hate me. I don't, you know, that, that might take a little more work. But if you think about your attitude towards other people, um, right, there are many times where we have had that attitude towards others. They may not even know it. Because it gets more personal than, uh, than this, doesn't it, right? When we break it down to an individual level, people who are kind to us, that we get along with, we view as our neighbors. Our friends, we care about them. But what about the next door neighbor, the family member, the coworker who's cruel, who mocks your faith maybe, who shows no regard or respect for you? We, we give that person the enemy label, right? We put him in that category. And our natural tendency is to 
dislike them, to hate them, right? We want nothing to do with them because of that. And we may never even use that word hate, right? If somebody asks, hey, do you hate X, Y, Z? We, we would probably, no, 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 no. But our actions and the inclination of our hearts reveal that we actually do. We actually do feel that way. Here's, here's an example. Let's say you're driving down the road. It's a snowy, icy day, right? You're on the highway. Somebody cuts you off, makes an offensive gesture at you, and then just zooms down the road, right? Similar things have happened to most, if not all of us, right? And you feel the anger rising up, the indignation in your heart, right? Your face starts burning. You're muttering under your breath. Let's say miles down the road, you see that same car spun off in a ditch, right? What's your first thought? Like, ah, it serves them right, you know? It's not often, wow, I should stop to help that person that just did those things to me, right? Our knee-jerk reaction is hateful. It is hateful. Not only is Jesus confronting the teaching of the Pharisees, He's addressing the natural tendency that you and I have to love those who do good to us and to hate those who don't. Right? That is a universal human condition. But for the disciple of Christ, the, the way to the kingdom of heaven, or the way of the kingdom of heaven, I should say, which if you recall is what the Sermon on the Mount is about. Right? The way of the kingdom of heaven. It looks very different from our natural sinful tendency. Let's look at the next few verses, 44 through 45. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. Our second point here is Jesus calls us to love as a son of God. After stating what his audience was used to hearing and understanding regarding their neighbors and their enemies, Jesus turns everything upside down. Right? He turns everything on his head here. He gives us this number six final I say to you statement in the Sermon on the Mount. And again, it's worth being reminded that Jesus is not disagreeing with the Old Testament. He's not contradicting the Old Testament. He's correcting the incorrect interpretation that the people had been given in their day. In other words, Jesus is about to illuminate what the true uh, spirit, the true meaning of God's commands are as he teaches his disciples what they are to do regarding their enemies. Sometimes Jesus speaks in parables and mysterious phrases that are a little gray. And then sometimes Jesus speaks in black and white terms, as black and as white as you can get. This is in that second category. Jesus says in no uncertain terms that we are to do two things. Number one, love our enemies. Number two, pray for those who persecute us. Notice he doesn't even mention neighbors, right? That's not even in the picture anymore. The focus is solely on how we should treat those we find ourselves in conflict with, those that may wrong us, those that may hurt us, those that we are tempted to hate. Uh, let's zoom in a little closer for a moment. First, at the beginning of verse 44, Jesus says, Love your enemies. Love your enemies. Again, this is a reversal from loving your neighbors and hating your enemies. Jesus swaps and says, Love your enemies. Think about what Jesus is really getting at here for a minute. Now, obviously, the command to love our neighbors is still true, it's still in force. But now Jesus puts our enemies 
in that same category. Jesus says we are to treat our enemies with the same kind of love that we show to our neighbors. Was there anyone we should not love? I don't see a third category here. This is the fundamental basis for the way that Christians are to relate with other people in the world. This is the basis for Christian ethics. This verse alone could define the way that we are to act in any relationship, regardless of who the other person is or what they do. Jesus doesn't add any qualifiers here. He doesn't say, love your enemies except when they do X, Y, Z. There's no escape clause from this command. But you, you might say, wasn't that being idealistic? I mean, isn't that being kind of naive? Sometimes you just need to show someone who's boss. Sometimes don't you need to just stand up for yourself and for your rights and to really, you know, give it back to that other person? Well, let me ask you, what did Jesus do? What did Jesus do? What did the Lord of glory do when he was arrested without cause by the Pharisees, when he was beaten and mocked by Roman soldiers, when he was crucified for sins he never committed? He could have easily come down from that cross. He made the wood that that cross was built of. He could have come down without any problem. He could have easily turned his back on those who were torturing him and saying, I'm not going to die for you. You treated me like that? Poof. No way. I'm not going to care for you at all. But what did he do? Jesus performed the greatest act of love in the history of the world, dying in the place of sinners, so that those who trust in him alone would have their sins forgiven, their souls saved from hell, and a true relationship with God through Christ. In the words of the Apostle Paul in Romans 5 that we read this morning, God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more, now that we're reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Do you see that there? God loved his enemies. Christ died for his enemies because of love. So is it naive? Is it idealistic? Is it some pie-in-the-sky religious idea? No, it's the very example of Jesus Christ. And if we are his disciples, then we are to seek to emulate his example. We are to walk in his footsteps, which means loving our enemies like Christ loved us. Because we once were his enemies. We once were rebelling against his kingly rule. To love means fundamentally to seek the true good of the other person, which is certainly what we see both in the life of Christ, the death of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, and in the following words of Christ in verse 44. Jesus tells us not only to love our enemies, but to pray for those who persecute us. Now in the context, I think we can take it as a given that these prayers for those who persecute us are not prayers for their destruction, right? They are prayers for their good. They're prayers for their good. Luke records another sermon of Jesus in which he, he teaches essentially the same thing phrased in a slightly different way. Luke 6, 27 through 28 says, Love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, 
Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. That's the same idea there. Because what is the natural response that we have to those who persecute us, harass us, abuse us, hurt us? It's hatred. <clears throat> it's a desire to retaliate, to harm in kind. But that is not an option for the follower of Jesus. We saw that last week and we see it this morning. Jesus tells us to pray for those who treat us in such a way. And I'm, again, pretty sure he's not praying for, he's not talking about praying for us to ask God to rain fire down from heaven, right? He's talking about praying for their good. He, you know, Jesus is not saying here that we need to purposefully put ourselves in situations where we know we will get hurt. Right? Jesus isn't saying that. He's not saying we need to be um, best friends with people we know that are going to harm us. <clears throat> but he is saying that our heart and our desire as expressed in prayer should be for their good. Praying for God to help them walk righteously, for God to redeem them. <clears throat> a prayer is an active thing, isn't it? It is an action. Because love is an action. Again, it's... it's not a fuzzy feeling. It's seeking what's good for the other person. <clears throat> and God is the one who gets to define what is good. So let me ask you, who are your enemies? Who are your enemies? Are you loving them? How do you respond when somebody mocks your faith? <clears throat> right? How do you respond when somebody might persecute you because you're a follower of Christ? You know, we sometimes pat ourselves on the back because we restrain ourselves. You say, yeah, I'm a really good Christian because I didn't call that guy all these, all these names, right? And we feel proud and righteous because we tolerate our enemy. But tolerating is not the same as loving. Right? We think we do okay because we don't slug a guy in the face. But Jesus says, no, restraint is not all that there is to love. It's part of it, sure. But it's not the whole picture. We are to actively, positively, seek what is good for those who persecute us. It is a challenging command from Jesus, isn't it? Do you love your enemy? Do you pray for those who persecute you? Yeah. It's, it's challenging. And Jesus says that as we do this, as we actively love our enemies, as we pray for those who persecute us, verse 45, we may be sons of our Father who is in heaven. Now what Jesus means here is not that loving our enemy transforms us into sons of God, not that loving our enemy gets us into heaven, but rather that loving our enemy proves we are sons of God. It demonstrates our profession of faith is consistent with our relationship to God. The reality is that when you trust Christ to save you, you're adopted into God's family. You're given the right to call him Father. That's not a universal right. Uh, this is one of the benefits of being a Christian. We go from being enemies to being children of God. We no longer relate to him as a righteous judge who will punish us for our sin, but as our Father who loves us and does all for our good. And when we love our enemies, Jesus says, we are resembling Him, right? We're demonstrating the family values of God, like Father, like Son. 
And Jesus goes on to explain in the second part of verse 45. Right, the earth is full of people. Billions and billions, right? I think we're seven billion something right now. And in that mix, there are good people, there are bad people, there are righteous people, there are wicked people, there are just people, there are unjust people, there are those who love God, those who hate God. And what does God do? Right? Does he make it rain only on the gardens of the righteous? While making the fields of the wicked dry and parched? Does he send cold darkness to the house of the unjust while sending warm sunlight to the just person? No. No, Jesus tells us in verse 45, he makes his son rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. He sends the same blessings to all. We call this common grace. Common grace. This is an important term for us to understand, right? Common grace, uh, which is defined by, by one theologian, John Murray, is every favor, whatever kind or degree, falling short of salvation, which this undeserving and sin-cursed world enjoys from the hand of God. Jesus' examples here, rain and sunlight. Those are common grace blessings, regardless of whether people are good or bad, regardless of whether they love God or not. I love how Luke 6.35 words it, that in this life on this earth, God is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Kind to the ungrateful and the evil. He sends common grace blessings to both. God's love for his enemies is not fuzzy emotion, but it's demonstrated by actual blessings, actual demonstrations of kindness. And ultimately, God's kindness to us is intended to lead us to repent of our sin and trust in him, Romans 2.4. And that, of course, leads us to the greatest kindness of all in salvation. Because God loves his enemies, because God is kind and generous to all, because God truly does good to those who want nothing to do with him, we are called to do the same. That's Jesus' point here. We are called to reflect the same character and activity of God, our Father. Now, think about this for a second. What does it mean if you refuse to love your enemy? What does it mean if you refuse to love your enemy? Can you really claim God as your Father? Right? Can you really claim God as your father if you have no familiarity or care for the values of God's family? All right, because God is kind and shows love to his enemies, we are to do the same. We are to do good to those who we consider friends and to those who we may not. But we are to do equal acts of love and goodness to them. Jesus is going to make another argument here, though. He's not quite done pressing home the point in the next few verses as to why we should love our enemies. Point number three, Jesus makes an argument for gospel love in verse 46 and 47. As Jesus continues in these verses, he drives home his command to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us with a, with a pretty strong argument that if you were a Jew in Jesus' day, uh, it would have been especially relevant and, and uh, maybe, a little, maybe a little frustrating perhaps, uh, as we'll, we'll see in a second. Now, as Jesus makes this argument, he, he mentions two groups of people that the Jews despised. Uh, first, in verse 46, he makes a point about partial love, mentioning tax collectors. He says, for if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? 
we love those who love us, what reward will we have? What blessing do you get if you only do good to those who do good to you? The answer is none. The answer is none. It's, it's a partial love. It's transactional. Okay, that person loves me. Yeah, I'll return the favor. That's just selfish. That's not loving. That's selfish. Right? If you're good to me, I'll be good to you. Well, that's not, that's not love at all. This is not compatible with Jesus' command to love our enemies. Jesus points out in verse 46 that even the tax collectors do this. Now, we, we you know, may not like the IRS, and uh, that's a whole other can of worms. But in Jesus' day, tax collectors were on a whole other level, right? A whole other level. They were contracted employees of Rome, and they would live in certain areas of the, the Roman Empire, and they would collect a quota of taxes from the populace for Rome's pockets. Now, generally, the tax collectors were natives of the land they worked in. And in the Jewish parts of the empire, the tax collectors were Jewish. Now, the Jews hated the Roman Empire. They thought they were oppressed by the Roman Empire. Uh, and they, they really despised Rome. So these tax collectors were traitors, working with the very oppressors of the Jewish people. And, and what tax collectors would do is they would uh, they'd have a quota. You need to bring in this much money. And they would subcontract. Right? They'd say, okay. You, come work for me. Here's your quota. Right? Kind of like a pyramid scheme. But whatever they collected beyond that quota was theirs to keep. Your quota is 1000 bucks, but you collect $1,500, you are doing pretty good. That's 500 for your pocket. And you can imagine how this loose system led to extensive corruption and embezzlement. Jewish tax collectors were despised by their countrymen because they defrauded their fellow Jews and they were in cahoots with Rome. Nobody loved tax collectors except other tax collectors. Now, interestingly, Matthew, the author of this gospel, is a tax collector. And I can't help but wonder what he thought about all of this as he, as he heard it, maybe. But quite clearly, Jesus loved tax collectors because he called one of them to be his disciple. And, and a couple more, I think. But the point is clear. Even the most corrupt, despised member of Jewish society still showed some kind of love to others. Big deal, right? If you love those who love you, that's way below the standard that Jesus sets for us with his command here. And you can imagine to the Jews of the day, being compared to a tax collector might have been infuriating a little bit, right? And I think Jesus is poking them a little. But there is great reward and blessing in loving our enemies. God is pleased when we love our enemies. It glorifies him and it displays the gospel the work of Christ in loving his enemies. To love only those who love us, that's a selfish and natural response. But Jesus isn't quite done. He goes on in verse 47 to make a similar point about selective interaction, this time mentioning Gentiles. Jesus says, if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Don't even the Gentiles do the same? Now to the Jews, their brother was their fellow Jew, their fellow countrymen. And what's so special about greeting those who greet you, right? That's a sign of welcoming somebody. Uh, what, what more are you doing, Jesus says, than anybody else? You're just talking to the people and welcoming the people you like. And Jesus references Gentiles here. Of course, these are people who are not Jewish. And in Jesus' day, the Jews had as little to do with Gentiles as possible. They wouldn't go into a Gentile's house because they thought it would make them unclean. They wouldn't drink out of the same cup that a Gentile used because it would make them unclean according to Jewish tradition, not according to the Old Testament, but according to Jewish tradition. 
Now, in Jesus' day, the Jews thought of themselves as superior to the Gentiles. And again, I think Jesus is using their prejudice against them a little bit here. He's, he's saying, see those people you look down on that you think are so, you know, so scummy, so low? Well, if you greet those who greet you, you're being just like them. You're no different than they are. Shouldn't you be aiming for something higher? Now, really what Jesus is getting at in these two examples is this. You're not doing anything virtuous. You're not really doing anything righteous if you only show love to those who love you or those that you like. You're not doing anything special if you treat those in your circle well while ignoring those outside your circle. You're not fulfilling Jesus' command or the true intention of the law if you only love those people selectively and narrowly that you define as your neighbor. And this gets down to something inherent to the command Jesus gave us to love our enemies. Now, even though there's a sense that we may think about somebody as our enemy, in reality, we're to love everybody as our neighbor. Now, do you see, practically, Jesus really is eliminating these categories that we so often construct due to our selfishness and sinfulness. Right? Jesus is just obliterating it. We're so quick to create uh, you know, these two boxes here, people who are good to us, Neighbors, people who are bad to us, enemies. But Jesus says, not so fast. You don't get that luxury of separating people like that. For all intents and purposes, every person should be loved as your neighbor, not just the people you like. And, and again, this may sound kind of crazy. This is challenging stuff. You know, and it, it, it may get very difficult, especially if you've been very deeply hurt by somebody emotionally, physically, mentally, financially. Again, Jesus is not saying we need to be best friends with those people and, and uh, even spend physical time with them necessarily. But Jesus is saying that if we're his disciple, we, we may not hate them. That's not an option for us. We are called to love them and to do good to them when we have opportunity. At the very least, we should pray for them. It is very difficult. I don't know if you, if you have experienced this, but it is very difficult to hate somebody that you're praying for. It's very hard. Try it sometime. In some ways, this is really a test of where we are as a disciple of Jesus. Are you willing to love your enemies? Or do you look for ways to justify why you don't really need to love your enemies in the way Jesus describes here, unqualified, black and white? It's worth thinking about Jesus' life again here. Jesus was not somebody who just said these things and didn't live them out. Jesus was surrounded on the day he died by what all accounts would describe as his enemies. Right? The chief priests mocked him, saying, Oh, he saved others, he can save himself. The Roman soldiers beat him and mocked his royalty. The crowds passed by and insulted him. If we were the victims of that kind of treatment, we would describe those people as our enemies. But what does Jesus do? What does he say from the cross? Does he say, Father, teach them a lesson? No, he says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Jesus loved his so-called enemies no differently than his disciples, who, by the way, abandoned him as he was being arrested. Right? Jesus loved his enemies. They weren't in a separate category. If we are disciples, and we are called to walk in his footsteps, aren't we? We are called to seek to live as he lived, aren't we? 
This is a high standard. There's no way around it. And, and to be honest, I'm not sure if we even quite recognize how high of a standard Jesus is putting forth here for us. And that brings us to our last point, verse 48. Jesus says, You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And we see here the standard of God's perfection. We might be tempted to think that verse 48 here only deals with this morning's text, right? Loving our enemies. But I am convinced that Jesus' words deal with the entirety of Matthew 5 so far. And let's review where we've been for a moment. Jesus started at the beginning of Matthew 5 by delivering the Beatitudes to us, right? Blessed are those, blessed are those, which basically taught that blessed are those who demonstrate true, consistent, godly character. Then Jesus goes on to talk about how, well, you may have not you know, committed homicide with your hands, but anger in your heart is the root of murder and God judges it accordingly. Whew. That's, that's really severe. We saw how Jesus describes lust as adultery in the heart and how God judges it accordingly. We saw how Jesus describes no-fault divorce as a serious sin before God. We saw how Jesus calls us to be so truthful in our words that we should never have to take an oath to make people believe us. We saw last week how Jesus taught us never to return evil with evil, but only to return evil with good, to turn the other cheek, to never be vengeful. And this morning, we see that we're called to love our enemies and do good to those who very well may hate us. Right? These are all commands that Jesus has given to us. It's all a picture of what we are called to be. And we get to verse 48 which really boils down all the previous teaching and really gets right to the heart of things. You must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Let's unpack this for a second. This is a, a reference to several Old Testament verses which quote God is saying, You shall be holy, for I the Lord your God am holy. You see, God has always throughout history called His people to demonstrate His character, His good, righteous, and holy character. And that's revealed to us by His law. We've been talking about that as we go through our Romans study and fellowship groups. God's law reveals His righteous character to us. And the standard of His law that Jesus has taught in the Sermon on the Mount so far, according to verse 48, is perfection. It's perfection. So, so let me ask you this. Do you think Jesus really means what He says? Right? Do you think Jesus is speaking hyperbolically? Well, it's not really perfect. Just do the best you can. Or do you think Jesus really means perfect, without failure, 100%? It's an important question. It has major implications for us. Um, is it even possible for us to be perfect? Is it even possible for us to be perfectly righteous? No, and if somebody said, I'm perfect to you, you would say, yeah, right, buddy. Um, you know, there's a, a, a great... Quote, how do you prove to somebody that they are a sinner? Steal their wallet, right? Um, that's a pretty good way to show it as they chase you down and beat you up. It is not possible for us to be perfect, is it? Right? Is it even possible for us to live every moment of every day in perfect obedience to God's good and righteous standard? Some people think, well, I don't really need Jesus. I don't really need this stuff. I'm a pretty good person as it is, and we kind of assume that God grades on a curve, right? But as good as you think you might be, are you 
perfect. Jesus doesn't say try your best here and you'll, you'll make it. He doesn't say you should be pretty good because your heavenly father is pretty good. No, you're either perfect or you're not. It's black, it's white. If you and I are honest, we know we are far from perfect. Right? We know this from our own experience, but just in case there's any doubt, the Bible says the same thing. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. In other words, everybody fails to meet God's righteous standard. Every single person, and that is just the problem, you see. God's standard is perfection. Jesus means exactly what he says here. And if you want to try to enter heaven based on your own good works, if you want to try to go before God and say, okay, God, judge me according to my life, my good deeds, my bad deeds, the things I've done, um, you're going to be sorely disappointed. You must understand the, the standard you're judged by is nothing less than perfection. So think about it. If that's the standard, who's getting in? Who's getting in? If you look at yourself for the ticket to heaven, for the answer, then you should have despair. You should be wringing your hands and going, what am I going to do? If, if the standard is perfection, I'm in trouble. God doesn't accept good enough. He accepts perfection because he is that good. He is that holy that nothing less will do. So how can anyone enter heaven? Isn't Christianity supposed to be a religion of hope? Of salvation? Yes. And Jesus' intention in verse 48 is to make us realize where true hope can be found. It's, it's supposed to make us realize we can't meet God's standard ourselves. We, we talk uh, sometimes in theology about law and gospel. The law reveals to us we can't do it. These commands Jesus has given us, surprise, you're going to break them. I'm going to break them. We're going to fail. The law shows us that. It measures our performance and reveals that we are sunk. And then God uses the law to turn our attention to the gospel, to good news. Jesus' intention in verse 48 is not that we would try to pull ourselves up to heaven by our bootstraps. Jesus' intention is not that we would try harder. Jesus' intention in verse 48 is to put forward the standard of the law that we might receive the gospel. Look back at verse 17 of chapter 5. Here's what Jesus says. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have come not to abolish them, but to what? But to fulfill them. Who is it that fulfills that law? Who is it that meets the standard in verse 48 of perfection? Who obeyed God the Father every day, every second of every day in his heart, mind, soul, strength? Jesus, only one. The Apostle Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5.21 that for our sake, God made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In other words, right, this is amazing. This is amazing. In other words, Jesus was without sin. He met that standard of perfection in every way. And yet he volunteered to go to the cross in obedience to the Father's will to die for our 
sin, our many, many, many imperfections, taking the punishment that you and I deserve for breaking God's law, rising again three days later in victory, so that our sin, our failure to obey all these commands Jesus has given us, so that our sin would be traded for his perfect righteousness. That is not a fair trade, is it? You cannot fulfill God's law, but Christ has fulfilled it for you perfectly. And if you trust Christ alone to save you, then those sins, those failings to obey God's law will be forgiven, and God gives you the righteousness of Jesus, which you haven't lived out. You haven't earned it. But he gives it to you as a gift by faith, the Bible says. As a, we, we could compare it to a coat, a garment that covers our sin. That when God looks upon us, he declares us righteousness, not because of what we've done, but because of what Jesus has done. That is grace. That is good news. And that's where verse 48 is supposed to lead us to. Not to try harder, not to burn ourselves out by trying to do good works to earn God's love, but to understand that God has provided a way already in Jesus. That is the point of verse 48. You will never do it in your own strength. On that cross, in love, Jesus laid down his life for his enemies. That we might be reconciled to God, enemies no longer, but friends. Children of God. And so, what are we called to do? We are called to love our enemies, not to get into heaven. Not because we're trying to impress God or other people. We are called to love our enemies because Jesus loved us first and has given us the greatest example in his own life, death, and resurrection. Brothers and sisters, love your enemies, for you have been loved by God. Let's pray as we prepare for the Lord's Supper. Our Lord and our God, what an amazing thing it is to see the perfection of your standard and to realize that you have met that standard for us. Oh, Lord, you know how hard it is for us to love our enemies. Lord, it is hard enough for us to love our neighbors at times. And we fall so short of this command. But, Lord, we are amazed at the example of Jesus who lived out his own teaching. We are amazed that though we sin and though we fail, even as Christians, that you, O oh Lord, have provided for us above and beyond what we could ever need to be counted as righteous before you. My Lord, we do pray for your help because we see the teaching of Christ as clear. We see it as black and white. And Lord, we look at ourselves and we realize we do not have what it takes. We need your help. Lord, help us to love others with the love of Christ, to remember what has been done for us by Jesus and to love others in that same way. For Lord, in reality, our enmity with other people is so much smaller. The offenses others commit against us are so much smaller than what we have committed against you. So Lord, we pray for your 
your help, your strength. We need it, Lord, in loving our enemies. And may it be for your glory. May it be something that displays the gospel to those who may be watching, to our enemies themselves. Lord, that we may do good to them and that in turn they may come to know you. Father, we pray for your help in all these things. Amen.